So why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 13. We're going to take a little bit to get there, but we will get there. So, so today, today marks an anniversary, doesn't it? Kind of a significant one. If you are, I mean, if, if you are older than, I don't know, 16, <laughs> um, it's, September 11th has had some type of impact on you already in some way, right? What I want to do is a little bit different this morning. I want to, I want to start with and let you guys talk for a couple, just a moment or two, not too long. I want to ask you this question. Just share with the people around you, because everybody had a different experience on September 11th. Everybody had a different experience that moment or those moments that followed. So, so what I want you to do is just, just with the folks sitting around you, your family, your people who are in your row, whoever's there, just the three questions. So where were you? September 11th, what? And, and what were your thoughts at around 9 a.m. on September 11th versus your thoughts when you put your head on the pillow that night? How different were your thoughts between when, when the attack first began and when you went to bed? All right, so good. Talk amongst yourselves just for a moment or two. Where were you? What were you thinking when it first happened? And then what, what, what thoughts were running through your head when you went to bed that night? So, so either it's not hard to remember or you are talking about your fantasy football lineup for later today. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I, there's a lot of reasons I won't forget it. Uh, one of the reasons is September 11th, 2001 is well, the date that we had the ultrasound uh, for Luke, our now 20-year-old, um, soon to be 21-year-old, um, and that has a whole story with it too. Um, another reason I won't forget it is because September 11th, 2001 marked the very first day that I was working for Calvary Baptist Church as a pastor. That was my first official day as a pastor. I should have taken the sign. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know exactly where I was sitting because I was in my very first staff meeting. I was receiving the uh, traditional hazing that is now frowned upon in most places from the other pastors because we're not as holy as you think we are sometimes. <laughs> and Sue McLean, our uh, receptionist, walked in the door and just with the complete terror on her face, said, something is happening, and we don't know what it is, but, but it's huge. Um, my first thoughts at around 9 a.m. were, is this real? Right? I was just telling um, Ray... Ray and I were talking out in our new extended lobby area, which you know you can use, right? Okay, just make sure. <laughs> Y'all like staying on this side. Anyway, Ray and I were talking and laughed about that, but then I was telling him, I, I remember distinctly that night we had a prayer meeting, emergency prayer meeting at church. We left church, and, and Stephanie and I had driven separately, so she was heading home, and I had to stop and get milk. And so I pulled up to the place where we get milk, Freddie Farm, Freddie Hill Farms. Um, local farm was great, and I got out of the car and closed the door, and as I walked towards the building, a jet went over my head. And that was when it got real. When I put my head on the pillow that night, I had more questions than I can even begin rehearsing for you. 
When tragedy comes, what should accompany it is a healthy dose of humility. But sometimes, instead of humility, what ends up happening is we start drawing lines, trying to figure it out. Immediately after September 11th and the attacks that happened in New York and D.C. and in Pennsylvania, the, immediately after that, and I'll, I'll be very cautious, but a cultural religious elite person being interviewed on a news station said that this is God's judgment because there are, quote, homosexuals who worked in those buildings. See, what he did was he saw the tragedy and he drew a line. Oh, that's why. Why do we feel like we need to do that? We all do it. It's a, I'm going to say human nature. It's probably a wrong way to say it, but it's, but it's a type of human in nature. And now, let's be honest, September 11th wasn't the last time that type of line drawing was going to happen. Go to 2004 and the Christmas tsunami. We have all kinds of reasons why those people got that. 2005, Hurricane Katrina. Well, you know because New Orleans celebrates voodoo. You got the huge earthquakes in Haiti in 2010, all because they made a deal with the devil and they allow witchcraft in Haiti. See, we're just drawing lines as fast as we possibly can. So, so September 11th would not be the last time that that happened, but it wasn't the first time either. It wasn't the first time either. We're going to look at Luke chapter 13, and we're going to see that this almost human nature response to tragedy is, is for us to draw lines from the, the tragedy to a reason for the tragedy. And we think we have it figured out, and we're pretty sure that there is a religious moral reason for these things happening. And what Jesus is going to say very clearly is, no. I mean... I mean, you, 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 sometimes you're like, God, could you just be a little more clear? You can't be more clear than this. And, and I know some of you are like, well, this doesn't feel like it's going to be a warm, fluffy, rainy day, hot cocoa, knit blanket, curl up on the couch kind of message. Well, what's your first clue? Okay. And now your second clue is, I don't know if you have headings in your Bible. Um, they're not inspired, but they give you a little insight as to what's coming. And, uh, staff meeting, we were doing devotions, and we, everybody started laughing when I said the passage. They're like, well, this is encouraging. Repent or perish. <laughs> One more thing before I jump in. Many of you, too many of you, um, have either had or are in the middle of your own legitimate tragedy. And there is scripture all over the place about hope and confidence and security and, and comfort. And I just want to make sure you know before we head into this, this passage isn't one of those, okay? Now, it, it's not going to ding you. It's not going to come after you. It's not going to beat you up. But, but Jesus isn't talking to those of us who are in the midst of tragedy or who have gone through tragedy. He's talking to those of us standing on the outside, watching tragedy and then drawing lines and doing the mental gymnastics that it takes to try to assign some level of control so that we feel better about ourselves. Um, if you are and have been through your tragedy, 
Um, I'm not dodging that. There'll be some stuff in here I hope you'll find encouraging, but, but also, uh, shameless plug, coming in October, we're going on a deep dive. And we're going to be walking through what it means to lament as a Christian. What it means to weep uncontrollably with, with feeling like your soul is dead. What it means to live life in the tension of absolute disaster and tragedy and, and horrible things in your life. And the reality that God is very good. And how them, those might marry together. So, so I'm not avoiding it. Um, it's just coming a little bit later. So um, let, me, let me read the passage. At least I'll read the first five verses in Luke 13. It says this. At the time, some people came and they reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all perish as well. So, so there it is, right? There's the, the line being drawn. It's the religious moralism. It's them saying, and, and because Jesus is Jesus, he knows what they're thinking. He's like, so I know why you asked the question. You're all sitting there thinking, these people. So, so you get the first group of Galileans. They go into the temple to worship, and, and Pilate, the Roman governor of the area, who was ruthless, we're not sure exactly why he did this, but he went into what should have been a safe space, what should have been a place where these people didn't have to look over their shoulders. And, and, and Pilate came into the temple and he slaughtered his enemies there, so much so that it said that their blood mixed with the sacrifices they were bringing. And people are like, well, it must have been because they had done something that we didn't know about. I mean, it must have been a, a special kind of sinner. Jesus says, no. And then this other event happens. In the southeast corner of Jerusalem, there was a pool of Siloam. And there, there evidently was a tower that was built there, maybe for defensive purposes. We're not exactly sure. We don't have any record of, of this event happening outside of Scripture. But, but whether the tower was being built or the tower was being um, repaired, we're not sure. But there were 18 people standing there watching, and the tower fell on them and, and killed them. And the thinking of these people was, well, they must have been great sinners to reap such a judgment like that. And the problem is, no. What they're thinking like is, is religious moralists. What they're doing is drawing the lines. What they're doing is, they're, let me explain religious moralism. Okay, if you do good things, you have good. If you obey, God takes care of you. But if you don't get what you want then that means you've done something, right? I mean, come on. Now, this is theology that is found in my absolute least favorite movie of all time called The Sound of Music. Oh, it's going to get worse. If you gasped, that ain't nothing. Christopher Plummer, Christopher Plummer, who was in The Sound of Music, I was greatly encouraged to find out just this week that he despised the fact he was in that movie. And as he got older, he began referring it to not as The Sound of Music, but The Sound of Mucus. Oh, yeah. So Christopher Plummer, his love interest, right? It's um, Julie Andrews. They sing this amazing song, right? And it's 
Religious moralism at its finest. Here it is. Here's the, I'm not singing it. I'll give you the text. Here you are, standing there loving me, whether or not you should be. So, so somewhere in my youth or in my childhood, I must have done something good. And unfortunately, it goes on. Um, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's religious moralism. And so what's happening here is these people are saying, okay, you have good in your life. Let me draw the line. Ah, so must have. You have tragedy in your life. Let me draw the line. This way of thinking was common in biblical history. You've got the story of Job, which I referred to um, last week or the week before, where, where Job's three friends come and they're like, Job, there's got to be something in your life right now. There's got to be something that you are just hiding or, or covering up. It's got to be a result of some sin. That was their, their way of thinking. You get to John chapter 9. The disciples and Jesus come across a man who was born blind, and the, the disciples ask Jesus without flinching. So who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Because the way of thinking was simply, okay, I'm drawing the line. There's tragedy in his life. It must be because there's something there. But, but what we need to understand, without diving into the stories, is that you get to the end of the book of Job, and God was torqued at those three friends. He was not happy for the way they misrepresented him and the way he works. And then Jesus responds to the disciples and says, no, had nothing to do with anybody sinning. Why would you think that? So, 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 so it, obviously that's not the way it's supposed to work. And, and here... Jesus says to these people, their tragedy doesn't mean they're worse sinners, doesn't mean that God's angry with them, and it doesn't mean that God's disappointed with them. Some of you sitting here this morning need to hear that. Just because there's difficulty in your life or has been difficulty in your life, it does not mean that you're worse sinners than anybody else. That God is angry with you. That God's disappointed in you. Tragedy comes because sin and evil has broken this world. When you look back at Genesis 1, you see the, the perfection that God created. Did, he, did, did, did God in this perfect world, as he created and said, that is so very good, did he create death? Did he create disease? Did, did he create um, poverty or, or war? No. Those things are the results of a world that's been turned, turned away from God, that's been turned inside out by the brokenness that comes from sin. Those things are the results of sin. And, and please understand this. Not a single one of us sitting in this room is innocent of that. Every single one of us carries with ourselves the sin that is inherent in us, the sin that we continue to find ourselves bathing in. See, here's the interesting thing about religious moralism. When you begin to draw that line, tragedy in their life must have been a bigger sinner, at least bigger than me. Right? Of course those planes hit those buildings because there are those people in there. It's a good thing I'm not like that. And the reality is that every single one of us is a sinner. Romans 3.23 is clear. All have sinned, and we have fallen woefully short of the glory of God. To draw the line to somebody's sin after tragedy is to be so arrogant and so very smug 
And Jesus stops him. How does he stop him? He says, listen, don't, don't you draw the line from tragedy to what you think their sin is. No, no, no. If tragedy occurs around you, what I want you to do is pick up that pencil, and I want you to draw the line from the tragedy right to your own self. When you see tragedy, what you need to do is, and Jesus gives it very clearly, unless you repent, you will perish as well. Unless you repent, you will perish as well. When you see tragedy, draw the line <clears throat> Excuse me, to your own heart. Repent. And I do. I think, I think a major portion of repentance in this context is Jesus calling on us to stop looking at our own goodness as something that we can brag about. Stop looking at your own um, incredible ability to obey and not sin. Stop thinking that you're so very good that when you do all these good works, you're just deserving that love and mercy and grace that God is giving you. He says, but instead, when you see tragedy... Draw the line right to your heart and examine the sin that you find there. Because you're going to find some there. The message of tragedy is is an urgency that's painted for us in James chapter 4. So what you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but your life is going to be. Your life is like a vapor. It appears for just a little while and then vanishes. The message of tragedy is that life is fragile because of sin. The message of tragedy is that it could be, it could be something unexpected. It could be an accident. It could be a heart attack. It could be a blood vessel. It could be something like a, a major quick-moving disease. It's, it could be something that we're all susceptible. I'll get that word right. Susceptible. There we go. But but what we do need to know, we may not know what it is, we will not know when it's coming, but what we need to understand is that the very fragility of our lives gives this message that Jesus is trying to pass along a level of urgency. Man, if this tragedy happens, and I'm susceptible to any tragedy, it could happen to me. That should be one of the main messages of tragedy. That, That could have been me. That should have been me. What am I doing with this moment that I have been given right now as a result of God's mercy? And should draw a direct line right to our own hearts. Where am I at? Am I trusting in myself? Am I trusting in Jesus? Am I fixing my eyes on myself? Or am I fixing my eyes on Christ? It's interesting. You look, Jesus kind of further explains this in a parable in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 6. Jesus told this parable... A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. So he told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Just cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it'll produce fruit next year, but if not... You can cut it down. <laughs> that is not an easy parable. So, so the master is frustrated. He shows up. Uh, he's given this thing plenty of time. 
uh, this tree, this fig tree, plenty of time to mature, to get its roots in, to, to receive the, the, the nutrients it needs to then begin uh, producing fruit. But now after all this time, as the master comes back time and time again, all he sees is this barren tree and it's just in the way. It's wasting the soil. It's, it's sucking the nutrients from other trees that should be getting the same uh, nutrients. And so it's, it's just wasting space. And so he says, let's just, all right, so vineyard worker, just cut it down. And, and the farmer, the vineyard worker's response would have been somewhat surprising in that culture. But, but he says, listen, master, no, no, hold on a second, hold on. I think that if I just give it a little more time, okay, just hear me out, just a little more time, right? A little more time. If I just dig out around it and I fertilize it and I take care of it and I make sure it gets the nutrients it needs, just, just give it a little more time, Let, let's see what happens. Do you notice what you don't get at the end of the parable? There is no response from the master. So it's just left hanging out there, this request. Just give it a little more time, and and if it grows, great. If it doesn't, then you can cut it down. What do you think? I mean, this, this, this is a teaching master class by Jesus. There is no answer, which means all of us are left wondering, what is the master going to do? Is it time for this tree to go, or is he going to give it more, more time? What is your life? It, 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 you're like a vapor, a mist. It appears just for a little while, and then it vanishes. I think one of the things that, that struck me this morning as I was praying through what to actually say about this passage, if we all got what we deserved, not a single one of us would survive the next tower fall. Not a single one of us would make it home safe today, right? If we got what we deserve, be honest, right? I mean, the, the reality is we do face consequences for our sinful choices and our sinful behavior, absolutely. Every single one of us has had to face the consequences of, of some type of foolishness that we have um, uh, um, found ourselves in. However, when you consider it, the, the, the consequences, it is such a very small percentage of the consequences we actually deserve, Minuscule, even, even the temporal consequences. Have you lost every friend that you gossiped about? No. No, yeah. I mean, so, so the reality is we don't get what we deserve. And Jesus says, as long as you're not getting what you deserve, repent. As long as you're on this side of tragedy, repent. As long as you're sitting here this morning and have breath filling your lungs, God's giving you an opportunity to repent. This is one of my favorite passages in in 2 Peter. There's a lot of good ones in 2 Peter, but this is amazing. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Okay, let me, a little interpretation there. He's not on your timetable, Okay. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that, that, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just give the tree a little longer. I'll dig it out a little, I'll fertilize it, just give the tree just a little longer. That's the cry of Jesus over your heart this morning. Just give it a little, a little longer. A little longer, please. But, and and, and I'm, the hard part, I struggle with this so much. There is no reason Jesus Christ should stand before any of us and beg us to accept him. He's Jesus. 
right? He's, he, he's, he is the king of kings, the lamb of God, the one who was slain before the foundation of the world, the one who stands in heaven, and we will all fall on our faces before him and cry, holy, 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 who is able to lift the seals of the scroll but him? It's only him. And yet here he's like, come on, I'm giving you a little longer. Until he doesn't. The very next verse. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Thieves don't make appointments. Thieves don't schedule themselves. Thieves don't put themselves on your calendar. Thieves don't make sure you have everything lined up and and ready to go. The thief shows up. So the day of the Lord is coming just like a a thief. And then the heavens are going to pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There is coming a moment, a time, this, this amazing moment where the patience of God is no more. Any delay in the owner coming to cut down the tree is nothing but mercy. All right. He could just drop the tree right now. No questions asked, but in his mercy... You and I have this moment. Yep, we've all seen tragedy. Many of us have been a part of it. But I think, unfortunately, we've been too busy trying to be omnicompetent to understand what everything is, and we've taken our pencil and been like, tragedy, oh, I got this figured out. There it is. Okay, I can sleep now. When in reality, what you and I are being called to is in this moment that the tree has not been cut down. We're to draw that line straight at our hearts. But I already know Jesus, so I don't need to repent. You need to repent of that. Because what you're doing is you're resting in your goodness on that point. And that's sin. What you're doing is treading on the blood of Christ and saying, oh, no, I've got it, I've got it. He's already given it to me. It's okay, I don't need it. No, you must repent. You know what's interesting? I think as believers in Jesus Christ, the sin that we need to repent of most often is thinking we're good enough. Thinking we're, we're good enough. Thinking that we can look at other people in the tragic world and be like, oh, that's because of them, but I'm good, so I'm okay because I got nothing to worry about. No, no. Now, there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, and you're going to stand before the throne of God with arms open, and Jesus is going to throw himself around you, and it's going to be wonderful. But my friends, let me be very clear. You didn't earn that. It was given to you. The mercy of God has been offered to you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you'd repent, and if you'd trust in him. I got really good news. If you're sitting here this morning, God's given you that opportunity. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and I'm going to pray. As, and then, as I'm, I'm getting ready to pray, I, there's no, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, there is no magic mantra, there's no aisle to run down, there's no papers to sign, none of that. Trusting in Jesus is simply taking a person at his word for the promise he's extending to you. And that promise he's extending to you is that you can have life eternal if you trust in him. That promise he's extended to you is that the payment has been made in full 
for your sin. You are no longer responsible for it if you would trust in Christ. What does it look like to trust in Christ? Well, it really doesn't look like anything specific. It looks like the heart crying out to the God who created that heart and saying, I agree with you and what you said about me. I'm a sinner. But I also celebrate the fact that it doesn't end there. I agree with you with what you said about me. I'm a sinner, and I take full joy in the fact that you sent Jesus Christ to die in my place. And I, I want him. So whatever that sounds like coming from your heart to his ears, that's what it looks like to trust Jesus. That's what it looks like to repent. Would you do that this morning? Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the, the truth that we can fall in Jesus, holding on to Jesus, resting on Jesus, and know that we stand before you spotless. I also just want to celebrate and be thankful for the fact that when we do screw it up, because we do it a lot, we can run right back into the merciful arms of our Savior, knowing that we will be forever accepted. I thank you that there is forgiveness full and free. And we don't have to live in shame. We don't have to live in guilt. We, we, we live in light of the resurrection, total and absolute victory. So Lord, today I pray for the one who might be wrestling in their heart. I pray that they would simply fall on the mercy of Christ. That every single one of us would leave here knowing that we have a God who loved us and provided the perfect sacrifice. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?